of the session you plan to be at this morning, we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming. If it isn't the session you plan to attend, just stay seated. We're going to lock the door in just a minute because <laughs> we've got a lot of good things we're going to tell you. Um, this session on the federal grants programs Preserve America and Save America's Treasures is part of the Sustainability of History Organizations track sponsored by the 1772 Foundation. Um, I am J.D. Vogt, I'm director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. I'm chairing this session as well as making a presentation. We have a top-notch panel. Um, to my left is Anne Alexander Pritzlov of Colorado, and she will discuss the Preserve America program, and I will follow up with, with a description of a Preserve America project, the Central South Dakota Heritage Tourism Education Program. Hampton Tucker is next with the National Park Service in Washington, D.C., and he will cover the Save America's Treasures program. And architect Lois Joyner of Indiana here will follow up with a description of a Save America Treasures project involving a National Historic Landmark in Columbus. We're all using PowerPoint for our presentations this morning, and since I am very technologically challenged. Um, this may make for an entertaining program beyond our content area. Um, we'll hold all questions to the very end, so if you have questions, please keep them in mind, and we'll take all questions at the end. Our first presenter is Anne Alexander Pritzloff. Ms. Pritzloff serves as a preservation and policy consultant. Her particular skill set includes heritage tourism outreach and policy, working with elected officials and advocacy, and coordinating educational events. For 12 years, Ms. Pritzlaw produced the Saving Places Conference, the leading statewide historic preservation conference in the country. Other notable accomplishments include helping to instigate Colorado's statewide heritage tourism program and the passage in 2008 of the Colorado State Historic Preservation Tax Credit. Ms. Pritzloff has over 30 years in the field of preservation. Her career highlights include serving as State Historic Preservation Officer of Arizona, appointments to the Colorado State Historical Preservation Review Board, and a presidential appointment to two four-year terms on the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, where she also served as the Preservation Initiatives Chairman, Committee Chairman. Ms. Pritzloff's contributions have been recognized by the National Trust for Historic Preservation with her participation in various projects with awards in 2008 for the Crow Canyon Archaeological Center for Educational Efforts, the 2006 for Colorado Preservation Inc. for Organizational Excellence, and in 1998 for Stratford Hall for Excellence in Stewardship. Ms. Pritzloff also has served on boards for many preservation organizations, and in addition to all of that, she is a mother and of three sons. She lives in Castle Rock, Colorado, and is also very active politically and in community organizations. So please welcome Ann Pritzloff. Well, Jay cues up the slides. I wanted to thank you all for coming, and I'm going to give you a little background on Preserve America. And how many of you are familiar with Preserve America? Uh, awesome. How many are you in Preserve America communities? How many of you are involved in the community application? So, and then, how many of you have gotten Preserve America grants so that you've gotten that next step? Okay, now we, now we get, why is everyone here? They want to get a Preserve America grant, right? Is that why, why you're here early in the morning to learn about that? Um, well, those of you that are familiar with Preserve America, is it because you are in a community? Raise your hand if you're in a community. Okay. And so have you, anybody used that so far to leverage your, your programs? Anyone want to comment 
on an example to share? Uh, um, yeah. We found out uh, about the Preserve America program by doing some research looking for some funding. There's, a, I was St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia, oh, right, uh -huh. part of a state heritage trail uh, called the Road to Revolution. So we had, a, we wanted to use the program to put up some uh, signage along the trail to identify the sites, and so we had a great uh, project for it. But it turns out our community, Richmond, was not a Preserve America community at the time. So we had to kind of step back and wait for and urge Richmond to go mm -hmm. through that process. Okay. Well, thank you for giving us a good example. You're going to hear, um, I'm going to share some examples from Colorado that kind of can help shape uh, how to better understand the Preserve America program. But um, the Preserve America program, just as you were saying, really focused on exploring and enjoying America. It was an uh, a initiative from the Bush um, White House that was really created for a couple of reasons. One, to bring together the, the various history programs to work to promote and market historic preservation, and also looking at after 9-11, a way to really kind of caps, capsule some of this need for and more patriotism in communities. So it was, for, it was founded by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, which is an independent federal agency that was created in 1966 as part of the National Historic Preservation Act. And on, as the role of the Advisory Council is to advise the President and Congress on historic preservation. And there are a number of things that are associated with the Advisory Council, which include reviews of impacts of the federal government on historic properties, and several things that look more mandated and are more of the stick than the carrot. And the Preserve America program was really looked to be more of a carrot incentive to encourage both federal agencies and communities and citizens to be more involved and engaged in, in appreciating and sharing the historic assets of their communities and really uh, treating their historic places as assets and looking at what their tourism potential could be. One of the huge um, benefits of that that I have been able to experience in my own state of Colorado is that the Preserve America program really um, allowed and provide a forum with a really great name of Preserve America um, to bring together some different entities that don't normally come together. Um, you know, it might be the Chamber of Commerce, the Tourism Office, and the planners, and the historic preservation community, and the local history museum, and maybe some people from the federal agencies, it gave you that sort of venue and reason to bring some people together and has been very successful also in civic engagement. I'm going to use an example here in a moment from Denver. Denver became a Preserve America community and a thousand people came and the mayor gave the most astonishing historic preservation speech you've ever heard. Um, along with a host of, of people from around the community that maybe wouldn't typically have showed up for a, uh, you know, another event at the Molly Brown House. You know, this allowed for a broadening of appreciation for the historic preservation and, and tourism efforts. Um, the Preserve America program, as I mentioned, was begun in 2003. It had a supporting executive order um, that President Bush uh, initiated and then was executed across the federal agencies. Again, it did task federal agencies to reach out 
in their communities, gateway communities, and internally to be better stewards, which has been a wonderful thing uh, across the country. It's been really great for us in our states in the West that have 40% public lands. Um, the program itself then got authorized in legislation just this year um, in April. So the program is not going to die with this, you know, the, the past administration. It will go on forth. Uh, and so we were very excited about that, that the program will continue. The key parts of the program are the designation of Preserve America communities. And the Preserve America communities, there are now 762 Preserve America communities across the country. And to apply, a community needs to have some sort of resolution or some kind of an ordinance that, that demonstrates the commitment of the community to protect and advance the appreciation of their historic resources. The other thing uh, to apply as a community, you have to demonstrate that you have done a project in the last few years or some kind of even an educational effort uh, some kind of restoration or rehabilitation project, something along those lines to apply. There are other um, efforts of the Preserve America program in addition to the communities and grants. There's been a um, great push to raise awareness and appreciation for historic preservation through this program through awards. There have been Preserve America presidential awards presented by the President of the United States at the White House, which has been wonderful recognition at the highest level. And there have also been awards from the chairman of Preserve America, that uh, the chairman of the Advisory Council, to recognize achievements um, that have been done in communities across the country and also by federal agencies. Um, another effort that started last year, which is near and dear to all of our hearts in preservation, was an, a national recognition for Preserve America stewards. And that was to provide national recognition from the highest level for those that have been active stewards and volunteers in historic preservation projects, whether it's at your house museum or a colonial dames, dames effort, or one of the stewards was the um, Chimney Rock Interpretive Association in southwest Colorado that's a group of 200 that literally volunteer to be able to interpret and share a Forest Service site. And so that was the first recognition nationally for that type of volunteer effort. Um, the other thing that has come from this is a History Teacher of the Year Award in partnership with the History Channel. And then there's uh, now these spawning um, educational programs. There's pr the Colorado Preserve America Youth Summit. There's a national partnership with the Advisory Council to generate service learning programs, to uh, promote more education and historic preservation, and then some partnerships um, also with the History Channel. Now backing up to focus on the communities, which are the entities along with the state historic preservation officers, as we'll hear, that can apply for these Preserve America grants. Um, 762 communities, if you can see the website on here to write down the reference if you want to uh, work on your communities to apply. The applications having, I've been involved with several of them, we have 29 in Colorado. They um, take a little bit of hand holding and some structuring, um, but they are not, they don't require a mandate for a community. They're not, they are an honor um, for a community to get. 
and they are recognition of your efforts. So it is something where you can bring various county commissioners or city council to the table to provide this recognition. Uh, It also, as I had mentioned, was a wonderful way for civic engagement. We have five counties in southeast Colorado that had never worked together um, because they have rural counties and they have, you know, Bent County plays Baca County and basketball and they've never crossed the line. Um, They came together and uh, got a Preserve America grant through the State Historic Preservation Office. And as a result of that, they've now all become Preserve America communities, are getting grants on their own, and it's really reinforced their preservation effort. So I encourage um, you to consider Preserve America communities in your area if you have not already. Uh, The other thing I will note is neighborhoods can also become Preserve America communities, as can um, Native American tribes. So that's something to consider. Um, I mentioned how the application process works. It does have to come through your city council or mayor's office, and there has to be some sort of resolution. Again, it doesn't have to be an ordinance. We just uh, went through a process to be able to make it easier for communities that are already certified local governments, if you're familiar with that designation, it's just a little easier um, for them to apply. In Colorado, we've had a lot of our rural counties have uh, applied. In fact, I think we may have more counties than we do um, cities or communities. And now the part that you were probably waiting for is, you know, show us the money. How can we get the money for this? Uh, I will give a pitch for the communities. The community program started before there was money and before we knew there would be money, and it turned out to be a really good asset for the communities um, that received this designation. And it was used as leverage for other fundings before we had Preserve America grants. So I wouldn't um, think, oh, I want to become a Preserve America community just so I can get a grant. You know, think about the other leverage possibilities uh, that you would have with this. The National Park Service administers the grant program. If you have ever gotten grants from the Park Service, you know roughly how that process works. The grants range from $20,000 to $250,000 with a 50-50 match, and the match can't be federal money. Uh, So you can't match federal to federal. Correct. We have the head of the program here, so whatever I say (laughs) as a community activist that I am, and there's the granting reviewer right there. Um, Okay, so you can use CDBG money to match. I'm getting it from the direct source of who (laughs) manages the grants. And the ones that it can apply um, are the Preserve America Communities, the State Historic Preservation Office, the Tribal Historic Preservation Offices, and then a certified local government community that's in the process of applying. Uh, Because you kind of assume if you're a certified local government, you are going to get your designation, so you can go ahead and apply. It's generally been two times a year um, that the, the, the timing has been able to be. We were a little delayed this year with some funding issues in Washington, so I'm going to get to that in just a minute about the process of it. What I do want to share is I view this as one of the only funding sources for interpretation, for heritage tourism. There, um, I know it's funded a lot of survey, some marketing, uh, signage. It's been a wonderful uh, partnership with some other funding sources like we'll hear about that really do fund more bricks and mortar. 
But it's really helped, I know, I've seen it firsthand in my state, some survey, interpretation, and, um, and, 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 and training for uh, visit, uh, visitor uh, readiness and creating some signage. Um, oh, as an example, this just overviews some of the possible projects that you'll see. One of them that's also always kind of a struggle seems to find funding for is getting that National Register nomination written and getting it done right. That's an eligible um, project. I was going to share with you one of the efforts that got funded as a case study to give you an idea. Yes? Yep. Yeah, um, the examples of possible projects are creating interpretive materials, including signage, brochures, itineraries. Uh, almost all the projects I can think of that were funded in Colorado have created some kind of uh, interpretive brochure or signs from big to little. Um, and then these planning studies has been an important tool. Um, there's been some efforts up in near Fort Collins where they have looked at how they can take this fame, this internationally recognized archaeological site and tie it into what they're doing and some other interpretation and recreational things. Uh, then uh, developing and implementing some kind of event, you know, or a Main Street type event, adding something that can be a heritage tourism draw to the community. The hospitality training, that's been essential for any of us in the field in heritage tourism or with house museums. You know, your key part is what are you telling the people down the street at the gas station? Are you telling them to come to you? Uh, in southeast Colorado, there was a tear-off pad that had a list of all of the interesting historic assets in the Preserve America community region that was sent to every gas station and every motel uh, as part of fun being funded by this grant. Um, and then I mentioned about the National Register nomination. I'm going to share a case study here to try to illustrate some of these things. In Denver, um, there were a, a number of disconnected historic house museums and that were looking for some way to collaboratively market and be able to share their story with the prime motivation that one of the biggest, most prominently visible national conferences was coming to Colorado with the Democratic National Convention. So there was a lot of motivation to try to, how do you link these places in Denver? So it was really good timing for them that the uh, historic Denver worked with the city of Denver and applied and received a Preserve America grant. And their real goal was to try to link these historic house museums, get more people to them, and try to uh, create some sort of itinerary um, to do that. And that was funded through the Preserve America program and then leveraged with a number of other grants. Um, how this, uh, a key part with Preserve America too, again I said it has a great name, was that it made it really easy to talk the other the house museums into coming together. They were having struggling visitation. No one knew if someone would get out to Four Mile Park, which is not quite in downtown, going forward. And it really helped to link the city to the historic preservation organizations and brought some statewide and national attention. So the funding came from the Tourism Office, from the Colorado Historical Society, the city and county of Denver, which normally is very hard to cough up money for cultural things, and then uh, Tourism Cares for Tomorrow. Those were the match. So what came out of here was this whole um, notion of creating a, a story trek and how that also uh, tied into Preserve America is there was a youth summit, 
a Preserve America Youth Summit held around the same time this was going to be developed. And they tied in to get the youth to give feedback on what the name should be, which they changed it from Heritage Trail to Story Trek, what was meaningful, what wasn't meaningful, what to use. So they kind of product tested all of this on this group of 90 youth. Um, and what the, the outcomes were, were to develop this scheme and this itinerary-based uh, program and come up with brochures, websites, audio tours, guide-by-sell, signage, and marketing and advertising. Um, it was really a wonderful achievement to, and the signs are still up. Every light post in Denver ended up having a story track sign with the uh, links to the various house museums and then also had the Preserve America logo. And Denver, of course, was on every TV from you know, Berlin to Hong Kong last summer when President, now President Obama was giving his acceptance speech and other notable national figures were running around um, Denver. So anyway, just a little more about the uh, Denver Story Trek. As you can see, it's a very hands-on, interactive, um, web-based program where you can set up your own itinerary to link these different um, historic properties. And what, one of the, what the kids had suggested that is an essential part of this is there be a way to record your own story. So there is a place, you know, you can press a button on the web and go say, you know, I grew up at 12th and Downing, you know, and that's right near something. So we've had a way to record people's personal stories and focus on that. Um, as you can see, we did make this really geared towards our, our advice from our youth, and all of these signs had cell phone numbers on them that you could press one and hear the Molly Brown story, press two, learn about the Molly Brown house, the building, you know, and so on. So anyway, so the, the key part was this was a very successful project. The seed money came from Preserve America. It created a framework that was expand, expandable. You could add personal stories. And it had uh, future integration with some upcoming events and keeping it going that way, um, as well as it's now going to be sort of entirely focused in Colorado's new history center, which you may have heard about. Anyway, the, the challenges, um, as with most efforts, are, you know, what are the long-term collaborations will be? You know, will Denver get more Preserve America money? Will the city keep committing when they're cutting funding back? You know, what do we do with it now? We've got this great effort there. And so, uh, and the other part is competing with for-profit ventures. There are a number of tour operators who have really looked to, you know, compete with that. So where to go from here? So where we are with the grant pro, yes, uh-huh. For Denver Story Trek, I think it was two hundred thousand. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I think the initial Denver grant was two hundred thousand. That's what you received from Preserve America. Yes. And then you matched. And then it was matched. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be right, right? <laughs> because it was. I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah. Generally, the 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 story I seem to tell the most of is our southeast story, which was two hundred thousand, but they matched it seven times. Um, Yes. Uh, this year is a, is a challenge to get funding and a new administration and to get the Preserve America legislation passed. Um, we were charged to do an uh, assessment of effectiveness of the grants. And what we really came back to 
uh, see with that is that it really has done a lot to generate different matches in communities and to really do a lot of leverage and to you know be, be, be able to understand that. We also, um, through that, were able to look at some other federal sources of money that were used in places maybe where the Preserve America wasn't possible, and I wanted to share that with you. Um, you might want to check these two sources because they do list other sources uh, of funding for historic preservation that have often, if they can't match, uh, they can partner on other things in your communities. And then where, we, where do we go from here? Yeah, sorry. Is there a space between heritage and tourism, or is that an underscore? If you go to achp.gov, you can find heritage tourism, and it's really easy to link to these lists. The same, the preserveamerica.gov, it, it's, it's very easily um, categorized on that website. Everybody got it? Okay, so now where do we go? Do we have any money left? Um, and how, where are we now in this process is that, as you can see, uh, this summer, um, the House uh, of the full House of Representatives had recommended $6.175 million for the Preserve America program um, for fiscal year 2010. And the Senate Appropriations Committee recommended $3.1 million so we've got they're going to have to come back uh, from their recess and duke it out um, and so we're hoping if you are in a preserve america community you might take that opportunity to share that information with your elected official um, we are confident that the president's budget included 3.175 that there will be funding it's just the matter of where we'll be between the three and the six and then now we have to begin making the case for 2011. So the good news is we have 762 communities, which is a, a lot of communities that are eligible to receive this, so a, a large collective voice. Yes? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, actually, this grant is so interesting. This is to take um, a number of, of theaters in rural southeastern Colorado, which look like, you know, incredible, and they're incredible icons, and they're, some of them are hanging on. Um, it's to create a, a video short on the history of the region, and so to entice people who are going to movies in Lamar to understand that the Santa Fe Trail's right near there, you know, and so it's going to be a heritage tourism promo that's going to be shown as the preview in these theaters. It's also giving these theaters something else to share, and then there's some marketing pieces built into that of how, um, you know, that little short they're going to create can go to, uh, you know, other theaters. You know, the, our hope would be it would come to Denver, uh, you know, and then be in the man theater down the street or whatever. So uh, it's a very innovative program to, um, and, and then we figured that we were hoping it'll have a bit on the theaters and the rest is um, on the, the region. Um, now these are, this is also what you're looking for here, some phone numbers and some websites and email contacts if you have questions about the Preserve America community application or the grants. And what I would suggest again is the website is really helpful there's draft uh, applications and you know and things like that that you can look at 
So that concludes the update on Preserve America. Thanks, Anne. Um, thank you, Ann. Um, I'm, I'm your next presenter, and again, I'm J.D. Vogt. I'm director of the South Dakota State Historical Society, and I'm also the State Historic Preservation Officer, or SHPO. I've been called SHPO or SHPO. I've been called shit something else, but that, that is what I am. Um, I, the South Dakota State Historical Society actually operates in five program areas, archaeology, archives, historic preservation, museum, and research and publishing. And I'm the immediate past president of the National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers. And in that capacity, I served with Anne on the Advisory Council for Historic Preservation for four years. And I was co-chair of the Preserve America panel, improving the preservation program infrastructure at the Preserve America Summit, and served on the follow-up study group, the expert panel examining the structure of the Federal Historic Preservation Program. I'm um, the conference chair for the 2010 Mountain Plains Museum Association meeting, which is going to be held in Rapid City, South Dakota, next September. So if you are in that region, I encourage you to come to that conference. It is September 13th to the 17th. Um, we'll be meeting in the shadow of Mount Rushmore, so please um, think about joining us in South Dakota. However, what I'm going to be talking about today is the Central South Dakota Heritage Tourism Education Pro Program, which received a Preserve America grant in July of 2007. Um, Preserve America communities and State Historic Preservation Offices are eligible for Preserve America grants, and we received an $83,000 grant, which was we required to match with non-federal dollars, and we did so with a $50,000 donation from the Dakota, Minnesota, and Eastern Railroad, or DM&E, and cash match and in-kind services um, for a total budget of $173,000 for this pro project. Um, we also received additional support and encouragement from these entities. Now, the cities of Pier and Fort Pier and Game Fish and Parks provided materials and labor for installing interpretive signs, and the Office of Tourism, um, which is a sister agency to me, provided contemporary photos, whereas our office provided the historic photos, and the local Historic Preservation Commission assisted with the preservation plans and the historic homes brochure. The project goals were to provide, the public, to provide the public information on both Pier and Fort Pier, encourage an appreciation for that history, and promote the heritage and history of central South Dakota. Another goal was to establish a model project um, that we could really promote throughout the state that other Preserve, Preserve America communities could follow. Now, real quick, just for a little background information here, Pier is the state capital. It's, it's P. I-E-R-R-E, -R -R -E, and we pronounce it Pier, not Pierre. Um, it's the state capital, and Fort, the city of Fort Pier is literally right across the river, and which was there long before the city of Pier was, um, across the Missouri River, and both communities derived their name from the historic Fort Pier Chateau, which was a fur trading post from 1832 to 1855. So most people don't know how to pronounce our community, so I just let them 
cleared up right away. Um, our strategy um, for this project was multifaceted. Um, it included needing a private partner, um, staff to manage the project, creating preservation plans for two communities, developing and installing interpretive signs at historic sites throughout the area, planning travel itineraries both online and in print to encourage people to visit these sites, preparing educational tools to help other communities carry on similar projects, and finally, finding ways to promote the project and these historic sites. In order to leverage the limited resources to, um, we have to do this project, we needed to find a private partner that could come up with sufficient financial support to allow us to take advantage of the Preserve America grant. One of the key aspects of getting a Preserve America grant is demonstrating a partnership with the private sector. Without the private contribution from the DME Railroad, we could not have done this project because we do not have the in-house resources to match the grant. Um, given that our current staff's workload did not allow us to take on, an, the, on a project of this scope, an important part of the project was also to hire staff to manage the project. Um, working with our nonprofit partner, the South Dakota Heritage Fund, we were able to hire personnel. Um, this is Jennifer Bros and Lee Radishat, both who worked on the project. Um, Jennifer, on the left, originally managed and organized the project and later moved on into a permanent position in our office. And Lee followed up with her and will be working through the completion of the project by the end of September. Neither Jennifer nor Lee happened to be new to us. This is a really good benefit of an internship program because both had served as interns in the State Historical Society previously. A major component of the grant was to work with the cities of Pierre and Fort Pierre to develop preservation plans. The purpose of the plans was to identify historic resources that might merit preservation, delineate community historic preservation goals for those resources, and define specific actions um, items to achieve those goals. We contracted with Mary Troutman Gates um, of a local preservation um, organization consulting firm to develop the plans. Mary held a series of meetings with the public, with city officials, and with many groups to get their input on what they thought was the most important parts of both of these communities. And now we're working with those, both those city governments to adopt these materials as their actual preservation plans. The next aspect in our strategy was to foster an appreciation of the history of Pier and Fort Pier and was to develop and install interpretive signs at historic sites and state parks throughout both cities. Now, you got to remember, Pier and Fort Pier um, combined have a total population of about 15,000 people, and we are 100 miles away from anything. So when we're talking central South Dakota, we're talking really central South Dakota. Um, we will be installing 26 interpretive signs at sites throughout Pier and Fort Pier, as well as an additional 19 signs at three state park areas. Altogether, we'll have created and installed 45 new interpretive signs throughout central South Dakota. Um, this is the dedication program for the first interpretive sign for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad Bridge on its 100th anniversary, which is now owned by the DM&E Railroad. Um, with me in this photograph is the president of the Dakota, Minnesota, and Eastern Railroad and the mayors of both Pier and Fort Pier, all of which have really embraced this project. Now, as part of the program of that day, um, the DM&E Railroad brought in their historic passenger cards, 
and they took train rides from the, the depot and pier to the depot and Fort Pier back and forth so people could ride on these historic railroad cars as part of that day. And we had hundreds of people turn out because they wanted to ride on those railroad cars. Um, this is the second of the signs we installed. We're at the Verendry National Historic Landmark site. These were unveiled in May of 2008 as part of the rededication of the Verendry site. Um, we would recently had done some restoration work and rehabilitation work up there. Um, Governor M. Michael Rounds presented the dedication address, and the mayors of the two cities unveiled the actual signs at the site during the ceremony. We recently installed six new interpretive signs at, along the walking paths at the Fort Pierre Chateau National Historic Landmark, which is an archaeological site. Six other signs are currently in production. For example, steamboats were a main um, method of travel up into central South Dakota before the railroad um, reached Pierre, South Dakota. And so they played a key role in our history, and we're highlighting that as part of one of these signs. Eleven other signs are almost ready to go to production. Um, for, for example, um, the, Pier Indi the Pier Indian Learning Center is one of the five few remaining federal Indian boarding schools in the United States for American Indians. And so we're having an interpretive sign put at, on their campus. Um, the Turtle Effigy north of Pier is an American Indian mosaic on a bluff which was paid tribute by warriors to another warrior for his bravery um, by his enemies. All these interpretive signs I was told it would be installed by the end of September. I think we're actually going to put in for a grant extension if possible. Um, other features of the project was developing three brochures for historic properties in the area. Working with the Pier Historic Preservation Commission, we updated the Pier Historic House Homes Driving Tour, and we're also developing brochures for the Pier Street in, in Pier. Main Street's called Pier Street, and it's actually two streets. It's an upper and lower, and it's got a real good um, controversial history about how um, it developed into the commercial area. And the Pier Hill Historic Residential District, um, which was the, at the time the, the place to live above the floodplain. For another major phase of this project, we worked with the National Park Service to develop online travel itineraries for all the sites that are listed in the National Register of Historic Places in Pier and Fort Pier. The travel itineraries are hosted on the National Park Service site, and we also link to it from our website. The website has been launched and includes a list of all the historic sites, information on the National Register of Historic Places, links to other websites and a link to other travel itineraries. Each historic site has a separate page and includes information on whether or not it is open to the public and if open, how someone can plan a visit to the property. This is an example of the Goodner House, which happens to be a private residence about one block from the state capitol building. Further, the website also includes three essays on the history of Pier and Fort Pier as well as an interactive map to help people find these sites. The Pier and Fort Pier travel itinerary is, a feature, is featured in this fall's um, issue of cultural, historic, cultural Heritage Tourism News um, put out by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, so you might want to look for that particular story. We are also working to get Pier and Fort Pier designated as Preserve America Communities. And as Ann indicated, it is a, a 
complicated or a more difficult um, application process, it seems like, for these communities to put together. And this part of the program recognizes the communities that protect and celebrate their heritage and use their historic assets for economic development and community revitalization and encourage people to, um, to experience and appreciation, appreciate local history resources through education and heritage tourism programs. Now, by being designated um, Preserve America communities, they would then also be eligible for their own grants to do ongoing other heritage tourism projects. And we're working directly with them to help write those applications. As I mentioned earlier, one of the things we hoped to accomplish by this project is to complete it as a model for other communities to use to do similar projects. To help other communities do these pro projects like this, we'll be adding a page to our website for this program. On that webpage, we'll have a tip sheet on various topics, such as developing effective interpretive signage, developing preservation plans, creating travel itineraries, and the benefits of heritage tourism, and promoting, those, and promoting your historic sites. We're also considering developing some kind of interpretive scavenger hunt to encourage people to check out all the different interpretive signs we'll have installed in the two communities. We also hosted several special events to this project to have several, and we had several articles in the Capital Journal, which is Peer's daily newspaper, and other newspapers throughout the state about the different aspects of the project. We also continued, um, coordinated our work with our Archaeology and Historic Preservation Month in, in May, um, to, to, combining those activities along with what we were doing for Preserve America grant um, to continue that goal to appreciate and foster an appreciation for historic um, sites. Now this concludes the presentation on the Preserve America program, and despite what the slide says, we are not, we're going to still hold questions until the very end of all the presentations. Preserve America is intended to support a variety of activities related to heritage tourism and innovative approaches to the use of historic properties as education and um, um, economic assets. Next, we're going to learn about Save America Treasures program, which is designed to um, protect our nation's endangered and irreplaceable um, historic places. Okay, what's the name of your program? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Our next presenter is Hampton Tucker. Uh, Mr. Tucker is the chief of the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Grants Division and oversees the grants programs um, through the Historic Preservation Fund, which includes the Save America Treasures Grant Program, the Preserve America Program, as well as the Land and Water Conservation Fund grants administered through the American Battlefield Protection Program. He previously served as the Certified Local Government Coordinator for the National Park Service and worked for five years as a preservation planner for the National Park Service's American Battlefield Protection Program. Mr. Tucker holds a Master of Architectural History degree with a concentration in historic preservation from the University of Virginia. Please welcome Hampton. Thank you, Jay. <clears throat> um, as Jay said, I'm going to talk about Save America's Treasures, which is the largest bricks-and-mortar preservation program for historic buildings and conservation of museum collections in the country right now. Um, 
Also, as Jay said, I, I'm the chief of historic preservation grants for the National Park Service. Uh, part of what we do is we give, uh, we administer the historic preservation fund. And um, these grants go annually to every state historic preservation office to help them. Um, they're sort of like operational funds for the state historic preservation offices. So we give, give one every year to all the states, the District of Columbia, and to the eight territories. Um, in addition, we also award grants annually to uh, tribal preservation officers, and these are Indian tribes that have elected to participate in the National Historic Preservation Program by taking on um, the responsibilities that some of the state that the, that the states have through the National Historic Preservation Act. This says we ha- we have uh, 76 tribes. Um, we actually currently have, I think, 81. They can um, opt in, and we started with 11 back in the early. Uh, 90s, and we're up to about 80, 81 now. Um, additionally, we administer several competitive grant programs um, depending on what we get appropriations for annually. The largest one of these is Save America's Treasures. Um, we also, in 2006, got the first grant funding for Preserve America grants, which Anne has told you about. Um, we have competitive grants for Indian tribes to do things like oral history and cultural preservation projects. We have technical uh, preservation grants that are administered through our National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, which is a National Park Service uh, center that's actually it's located in northwestern Louisiana. Um, and addi- additionally, we have, a, we have several uh, grant programs that uh, work towards helping uh, communities with battlefields preserve their sites. One is the Civil War Battlefield Acquisition Grants, and these are uh, clearly uh, go towards the acquisition acquisition of Civil War sites, and they're um, available to state and local governments, and you can partner with a nonprofit to get these grants. We have uh, planning grants for uh, through the American Battlefield Prote- Protection Program, and these grants can be used for anything um, like National Register nominations, any sort of interpretation, preservation planning, but the goal of these is to help communities that have battlefield resources uh, protect those resources. Um, and it started through this. Uh, it started as a Civil War preservation uh, program, but now um, we've expanded and we include Revolutionary War, War of 1812 sites, French and Indian War, and a few World War II. Uh, communi- communities with World War II sites in the Pacific. And finally, we have a grant program to help historically black colleges and universities uh, preserve historic buildings on their campuses. And we recently got a $15 million appropriation through the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act that's going towards uh, preservation of HBCUs. Um, if you want information about any of our grant programs, you can go to our website, which is listed right here. Um, that's just a screen capture of our preservation grants um, uh, main website. And you can see along the the right side, there's a list of links to each of the different grant programs that we administer. Okay, Save America's Treasures. Uh, Save America's Treasures was begun in 1998. It was an initiative out of uh, the White House um, through Hillary Clinton, who was First Lady at the time. Um, the idea was, as we approached the turn of the century and the turn of the millennium, to focus the attention of the American people on the importance of our national heritage and to save America's threatened treasures. 
Um, the National Park Service is a lead agency in administering the program, but we work in partnership with several other federal agencies, including the National Endowment of the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, and the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. And we actually have um, three people, two people from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Laura Word and Andrea Anderson, and Christine Henry from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And they're sitting towards the back, and they... Uh, they they work in partnership with my office. My office administers the grants that go towards historic buildings, and those guys administer the grants for uh, conserving museum collections. So I'm more familiar with the building the building side of the program, so if I make any mistakes, feel free to jump in and correct me. Um, and I think a couple of them might have to leave shortly because they're catching a plane, but I think Christine is going to stay for the whole thing. Um, the first Save America's Treasures grants were awarded in 1999. Uh, since then, we've gotten about a $30 million appropriation annually for the program. The last couple of years, it's, it's declined a little bit. We have, we've had about $20 million for the last couple of years. But overall, for the most of the program, we get about $30 million. Generally, Congress chooses to, ha- uh, to earmark half of those funds for projects in their districts. Um, and then we award the other half through a competitive grant program. In fiscal year 2009, we have $10 million to award competitively to nationally significant historic properties and collection. And in 2009, Congress also earmarked $10 million for projects in their district. Um, Starting in 1999 and going through 2009, we have received 3,600 applications. Um, They've requested almost $1.5 billion uh, worth of funding We've been able to award just over $300 million in grants to about uh, 1,132 projects, and they've been split between competitive grants and earmark grants pretty uh, pretty, uh, equally. About 70% of the projects we've awarded have been to historic properties and 30% to collections, and we've awarded grants in all the 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the Midway Islands. So you can see it's a pretty competitive program. for example, this year we got about 350 applications, and we expect that we'll award about 40 grants. Um, yeah, it's pretty competitive. Also, I should say, as I go along, there are photographs of successful Save America's Treasures grant projects. Um, and I'm going to be followed by Lewis, who's um, representing an, an excellent project we had in Indiana from a couple of years ago that just complete, completed. This is a report that the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanity produced um, to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Save America's Treasures. And if you're interested in getting a copy of that, um, I'll have our, our phone number and our website address at the, end of the, at the end of the presentation. You can write that down and contact us, and we can send you a copy of this report. But it gives you an overview of the program. Um, it also has a list of all the projects that have been funded, and it has uh, case studies of, of successful projects. Um, as I said... These grants go to nationally significant projects. Um, For a historic property to be considered nationally significant, you either have to be a national historic landmark or listed in the National Register of Historic Places, either individually or as part of a historic district, for national significance. Um, The same for collections. A collection has to be a nationally significant museum or archival collection, um, and you need to describe in your application um, for a collection why why it is nationally significant. For historic properties, um, it's a little more cut and dry. Uh, Properties either are designated as a National Historic Landmark or they're not. 
Um, when a property is listed in the National Register of Historic Places, it gets one of three levels of significance. It's either designated as national, state, or locally significant. In order to qualify for a competitive Save America's Treasures grant, you have to, ha you have to be listed in the register for national significance. And again, for the collections, we don't have such a we don't have the same sort of cut and dry distinction. So, and the collections uh, for collections, if, when you're applying, you have to be very uh, very clear in your application why the collection you're applying for is nationally significant. And then we have a review panel that evaluates that. Um, when we're reviewing the applications, we have several different criteria that we look at. The first is national, national significance, and we call this a threshold criteria. If you don't meet that, um, then unfortunately, unfortunately, the application um, is disqualified. So the first thing we look at is to see if you're nationally significant, either as a national historic landmark or national register national significance. Um, second, because the, prop, the, uh, the program is so competitive, um, only the most threatened or endangered projects are, uh, are able to get funding. So it's really important when you apply that you uh, have a very detailed description of why your project project or property is is indeed threatened and endangered. Um, and then you also need to show how what you're proposing to do with our funding will successfully mitigate the threat to the project. We also look to see that your application is well planned, meaning um, especially for buildings, which I'm more familiar with, um, if you've had a historic structures report done that is recommending the treatments that you're proposing, or if you've done any sort of planning, please, uh, in your application, talk about that and explain why what you're proposing is um, the appropriate thing to be doing at this point for your project. You need to make sure that the treatment that you're proposing addresses the threat to the property, um, that you have an appropriate budget, meaning that what you're proposing to fund, you have explained in detail in your budget and the two link together. Um, and then, like Preserve America, we have a dollar-for-dollar dollar matching share requirement. You don't have to have the matching share when you apply, but if you don't have them in hand, you should have a pretty good idea of where they're going to come from and, and let us know in your application what your plan is to raise these funds. And, oh, and for matching share, like Preserve America, it can be either cash or soft costs. So if you have any sort of donated architectural services, donated labor, things like that, you can uh, count as the 50% match. Eligible applicants include federal agencies, nonprofit organizations that have 501c uh, uh, status, state and local governments are eligible to apply, federally recognized Indian tribes, and uh, historic properties and collections that are associated with religious organizations. This is the only uh, National Park Service historic preservation or federal preservation program that allows funding, bricks and mortar funding for churches or religious properties. Um, when the program was started in 99, we did not allow it uh, to fund churches, but in 2003, the Old North Church in Boston applied for a grant and it was turned down and they petitioned to, um, to the Department of Interior and our, our lawyers looked into it and wrote an opinion saying that for Save America's Treasures only, we could allow funding for churches and or other religious organizations. And since then, we've been pretty um, consist consistently funding churches and synagogues and religious structures since then. And you're going to hear about one of those in a second. Um, we fund preservation or conservation for work on nationally significant uh, cultural and intellectual artifacts and historic structures and sites. For historic structures, what I'm talking about is buildings, but it can also be things like uh, archaeological sites, historic districts. So if you have a, a historic district and you, you can apply for um, two or three buildings within, within the district, uh, also things like structures. We fund a lot of bridges. 
Um, we fund a lot of dams, things like that, and objects. We also fund uh, historic ships and uh, train trains a lot. Um, on the museum collection side of it, it includes artifacts, works of art, documents, sculpture, and performance art. We never fund any sort of uh, acquisition of a collection or historic property. Um, we never fund the reconstruction of a historic property or the moving of a historic property. And often, when, or usually, when you move a historic property, it no longer retains its uh, eligibility for the National Register of Historic Places. So that's why we don't fund moving historic buildings or buildings that have been moved. Um, we don't fund any sort of new construction. Um, we are not allowed to fund any sort of fundraising campaign or work that has been performed prior to your grant. Um, we generally don't fund historic structures reports or collections assessment unless it's a small component of a larger project, and we don't fund any sort of long-term maintenance or curation. Um, our applications are usually available online at grants.gov. This, um, this past year, we uh, did not use grants.gov, but we, we, still, um, we still had an online uh, grant application process that were uh, and the the guidelines and the, uh, the directions were available on our website, which is up on the screen. Um, generally, our applications are in the spring. For 2009, our, our application deadline was in May. Um, the applications usually will go out in March, and I expect that will be the same for 2010, depending on when we get our appropriation from Congress. But usually you can expect the applications to be available on our website in, in March with a due date of late, late May. And then uh, we usually make an announcement in the late fall. And for 2009, our applications were due in May. Our review panel is going to be meeting on September 10th and 11th. And um, we, I would expect that we'll probably make an announcement of those grants in, uh, I would guess, November, um, after it goes through all of the various levels of approval it has to. Um, by law, only one project can get an SAT grant. And Anne described uh, the authorizing legislation that uh, in, in the, this past spring, Save America's Treasures and the Preserve America programs were both auth authorized officially, finally, through Congress. Um, before that, we've been just uh, sort of depending on our annual appropriations to get funding. But this authorization gives us a little, little bit more footing and a little bit more, um, hopefully, gives us, gives us some more sticking power. And we'll, we're hopeful that this, this will continue to, get, um, to continue to get funded. Save America's Treasures has been a very popular program. As I said, it was started by Hillary Clinton back in the, in the late 90s. But um, the Bush White House was very supportive of it and continued recommending funding every year. And uh, we've had uh, President Obama and his budget request for 2010 has also um, continued the support for the program. So it's, it's been a very, a very, very widely supported program on both sides of the aisle. Um, this is our Save America's Treasures screen capture of our, our Save America's Treasures website. Um, you can go and get uh, guidelines and applications on, that, on this website. You can also get an example of uh, successfully uh, Selected application. If you want to download one of those to see what's a good application, you know, to see to see how to, you know, what a good application looks like. Um, what makes a good application? As I said, it's a very competitive program. We had 350 applications in 2009, and we'll probably award 30 to 40 grants. Um, you need to make sure that your project your project addresses all the criteria of the grant program, and really focus on the application itself, and not on submitting a lot of supplemental. Uh, material because we get so many applications, our reviewers really only have the time to focus on the application itself and not to read through a lot of supplemental um, documentation. 
be as specific and concise as you can in the application and make sure you plan in advance because it's not a it's not a terribly difficult application but it does require you to get uh, you know to do some research on your property and you really need to know what what it is you're you're applying for and that it's the best thing to be doing for your for your for your building or collection so make sure you start in advance um, and also, we always tell people to be be prepared to apply more than once because it's so competitive. Um, you know, a lot of people just don't get don't get funded the first time. But we're happy to share reviewer comments with you if you don't get selected, and we can go over um, why we think you know why the reviewers didn't select your application, and we can help you uh, try to tailor it and tweak it so that if you apply the next year, you'll have a stronger one. Um, Something that you should do early in the process is contact your state historic preservation officer. They can tell you um, whether your property is listed in the National Register of Historic Places and what its level of significance is, national, state, or local. Um, if you're applying for a museum collection, make sure that your, uh, your statement of national significance is very clear. Um, also, identify all of the threats to the property and make sure that the work that you're proposing addresses those threats. Um, also, make sure that your budget is very clearly linked to the scope of work you're proposing. And like I said before, with the matching funds, if you don't have them in hand, make sure you identify that you have a, uh, identify where you plan to get them from, and if you have a plan for raising it. Uh, our grants for historic properties start at $125,000, and like because we have a dollar-for-dollar non-federal match, uh, that means you have to have at least a $250,000 project for your historic properties. For collections, the grants start at $25,000, so you need a $50,000 minimum project. And then our maximum request for both buildings and collections is $700,000. In 2008, our largest grant was $525,000, and the average grant was $280,000 for a building and $234,000 for a collection. Um, another thing I always tell people is expect probably not to get exactly what you apply for because it's so competitive. We try to award as many grants as possible. Um, so a lot of times the review panel will look at your grant application. There may be sections of it that they do not like as much as others, so they may cut it a little bit. So you might apply for $700,000, but you may only end up getting $500,000. Um, and then we'll work with you to make sure you still want the grant and make sure that you understand what sections of it the panel wanted to fund, and we'll work with you to tailor your, your scope of work and budget down. Um, we generally set up the grant period to run for two to three years, but we can extend it a little beyond that if needed. Um, all of the grants require the dollar-for-dollar dollar match that can be either cash or in-kind. It, uh, it cannot be any sort of federal funds. Um, like Preserve America, the only federal funds that are eligible as match are community development block, block grants through HUD. Um, the National Park Service for the buildings, um, we, will we require that we concur with the architects and any historic preservation specialists that you select for the project. So we'll review those resumes. Um, all the work for buildings needs to meet the Secretary of Interior's standards for the guideline, standards and guidelines for archaeology and historic preservation. Um, and so before you begin construction work, uh, we require that you submit all of your plans and specifications to our office for review and also to your State Historic Preservation Office. And, the, and my office and the, and the State Historic Preservation Office will work together to review your plans to make sure that they meet all the appropriate um, historic preservation standards. 
during the construction phase of the project, we ask that you put up a sign just acknowledging that you got assistance through Save America's Treasures, and then all building-related projects are required to enter into a 50-year preservation easement with, a, with your state historic preservation officer. And this means that for the next 50 years, before you do any major alteration to the building, that you submit those plans to the state historic preservation officer so that they can review them and make sure that, that the treatment that you're proposing is appropriate. And I believe that's it. That Again, that's our website um, and our telephone number. And feel free to call or uh, email us. Um, or well, I guess you just, we have an email address, but it's not up there. Well, feel free to call us. Or you can, if you go to our website, you can get our email address, and you can send any sort of questions to us that way. Um, and if you applied in 2009, expect to hear probably in November, I would guess. Um, and that's it. Thanks, Hampton. Now our next speaker is um, Louis Joyner. Mr. Joyner is an architect um, and principal with the firm Louis Joyner Architect um, based in um, Columbus, Indiana. Mr. Joyner received his Master of Architecture from Southern California Institute of Architecture and worked for notable firms in Los Angeles and Indianapolis before starting his practice in Columbus in 2000. Um, the scope of the works of the firm's work includes commercial and residential projects with a specialty of work related to historic preservation. In 1998, Mr. Joyner spearheaded the effort that resulted in the designation of six Columbus modern buildings as National Historic Landmarks. This multiple property listing was the first in the nation to recognize buildings less than 50 years of age and a significant step in the preservation of modern buildings. Um, Mr. Joyner wrote the application for a Save America Treasures grant, then provided the architectural services and served as the grant administrator for re-roofing and other repairs to the R.O. Sarin North Christian Church, built in 1964 and one of Columbus's six National Historic Landmarks. Mr. Joyner has worked with other notable modern buildings in the Columbus area, including four elementary schools and a retirement center. He is currently working on a National Historic Landmark nomination for the Republic Newspaper Plant and Offices, a 1971 building um, designed by Myra Goldsmith. Uh, Mr. Joyner serves on the Indiana Historic Landmarks Foundation's Committee, Indiana Modern, and on the board of Lorimore, a historic house used for housing of elderly by the Friends of the Society. Please welcome Louis Joyner. Thanks. Uh, I'm not. Just, okay. Thanks. That's my technical challenge for today. Um, North Christian Church is a, like we said, a building by Eros Saarinen, um, built in 1964. It's one of what well, we have. Columbus has, by my list, about 140 resources um, that include buildings, um, landscapes, and works of public art by um, important modern architects um, that are na nationally known. And these are guys like um, well, Aero Saren and Aelio Saren and um, I.M. Pei. Uh, we've got a Robert Venturi Fire Station. So it, throughout our town, it's mostly public buildings. Um, there are some private houses. Um, 
and it's been an effort that's been going on since 1942, and it just continues. So it's scattered throughout our town. It's just all these significant works of modern architecture. Um, Errol Saarinen had a, was an early had an early um, association with Columbus. He worked um, did this building. So this is, these are recent photographs. Um, and this building also had um, interior elements designed by Alexander Girard, who was a interior designer, fabric designer, furniture designer, that um, was also closely associated with the Saarinen's, with um, the Miller family, um, Knoll Furniture Company. Um, Arrow also designed the Miller House, designed in 1955, National Historic Landmark, um, recently donated by um, members of the Miller family to the Indianapolis Museum of Art, and that's going to become a house museum in um, uh, about 2011, they expect to open. And both that house and the um, uh, North Christian Church have landscapes designed by Dan Kiley, who's an, like one of the most important modern landscape architects. Irwin Union Bank is also, these are both all associated with the Miller family. This was, Irwin Union Bank is their bank. Um, and that was done in 54. It also had a landscape by Kylie, but that's gone. The other three National Historic Landmarks in Columbus is North Christian, First Christian Church by Elio Saarinen, Mabel McDowell School by um, um, John Carl Warnke, and then, I'm sorry for the poor slide, because it's a wonderful building, um, First Baptist Church by Harry Weiss, who was a Chicago architect. North Christian Church um, is a um, really, truly beautiful building, but it had some really, it was an extremely technically difficult building to build, and when they did it, as with a lot of modern buildings, they tended to fail rather rapidly in certain ways. Um, so we had failure of the slate. Slate usually lasts about 50 years. They had used a, uh, a slate that from Pennsylvania rather than one of the better quality slates, and it failed rapidly. Um, the gutters um, are, because of the way the design of the building is, they didn't drain properly, and expansion and contraction caused them to fail. And then there's a lead-coated copper fascia on the building, and you can see that it's curved here where those lines are supposed to be straight. It had sagged almost six inches in some places because the fasteners had actually just given loose from the plywood substrate. So that was the need. That had actually been identified by the, um, by the church, and they had had an architect who was working on the project who was another local architect. Their contractor, they had a roofing contractor involved, and they were ready to move forward with a project that was really going to just probably be, um, because of their funding limitations, gonna, they were probably going to have to put asphalt shingles on the roof. Someone identified, um, someone in their um, denomination, they have a field, the guy who actually kind of watches out for the buildings, um, identified that they might be eligible for this grant. And they got me involved because I had worked on other grants in town. And so um, I assessed, you know, looked at the building, looked at the grant program, and said, well, it looks like to me like you would qualify. And so we went ahead and wrote the grant and um, really very carefully tailored the grant to what we saw were these... Um, criteria, the national significance, where well, we knew the building was, um, had the uh, 
met that standard, the degree of threat, work supported, and feasibility. So national significance, the building was designated a national historic landmark. Aero Saran is a very important uh, modern architect. He, um, this is one of his better buildings. It's also considered his last building. He died um, right after the kind of the preliminary drawings were completed. Um, the degree of threat, well, if your building's leaking, it's threatened. Um, and the threat to the building, we were able to, to describe that threat easily and, with, and very clearly. Um, the leaks were very obvious. Um, the roof was, was itself not leaking. It had been maintained in terms of replacing slates regularly, but the gutters were in very bad condition, and we knew that the roof was, was failing. The slates themselves were almost mushy. You could pull one up and just kind of crumble it in your hands. Um, and uh, so it was clear, clearly easily represented how we could mitigate the threat to the building. It was clear, easy to, for us to demonstrate what the work was going to, what, what the proposed scope was. The previous work that they had already had done by the other architect and by the contractors had done enough investigation. So we didn't have a formal historic structures report, but we had this work was done that, that identified the elements that had failed and were close to knowing the correct solutions. And so we were able to describe that this is what we intend to do. We knew that there might be some modifications. Um, the public benefit is one of the things that we understood they were looking for was um, who, who would benefit from the building. It's a privately owned building by this church, but Columbus has so much visitation. Um, and this building has historically always just been open. And in Columbus, if you go to one of these churches, you just wander in, and you may not see anyone. But you can go around and just visit the building. Um, then our visitor center also runs daily tours, and the building gets visited daily, probably by you know 50 people or so, just on the tours. And then um, no one keeps track of who just wanders through. Um, feasibility. We understood what the problem was. We knew that the solutions weren't necessarily written in stone. They had, we had a project team that was already identified and proposed, but they weren't qualified, you know, hadn't necessarily been vetted by the Park Service. Um, but the people we were proposing had uh, a long experience with the building of the roofer that we had, at least had been consulting with, and we and actually ended up using it, but it was a competitive bid process had done the maintenance on the roof for years. Um, the contractor that we were going to use for construction manager, their firm had built the building and had maintained it since 1964. And then the um, previous architect that we were proposing had worked on the building for several years. Um, financial feasibility, the church had a long track record of being able to raise funds. And they had, we had, uh, our, our project budget was that we submitted was, I think, $625,000. Um, they had $250,000 in the bank right then um, for this project. Um, and as a 50-year old institution, they were clearly had a track record of being able to kind of continue. So we received the grant. We received $300,000 of our, 
of the requested 325, I guess. And um, the project actually came in right at the final cost was, the total cost of the project was $606,000. So they only had to dip into their funds by 6000 So it was, um, from their point of view, a very successful project. We uh, started last August in construction. We got the grant awarded, I guess, in the end of 2008. And through the spring, we worked on the documentation and getting approvals and doing construction drawings. In that process, the previous architect withdrew and I took, on, took it over because I had enough familiarity with it. I knew the project and I had, was also qualified. Um, so we um, removed the slate, replaced it with new slate. There was, uh, we used a, a slate out of Canada. Instead of the originally specified slate, the price difference was astronomical. Um, and they were um, a comparable quality and appearance. Um, we removed the old gutter lining. You can see that they were very deep D and they did not drain. And um, they had probably leaked from very early on. What we did was we um, put in a new copper gutter lining. Um, we re reconfigured the, uh, that V so that we can um, actually build in some slope. And we redid the way the copper was laid so that, yes? The, uh, the deep V in the gutter, was that designed by the architect? Mm-hmm. It, it looked good on paper. <laughs> but it didn't work. Um, and one of the problems is that, that, that when you get up on this building, the only way to walk around it is to walk in those gutters. And so the gutters are like this. There's, there's a lot of traffic in them. And so when you have this deep V and, and the plywood underneath was not properly supported, and so the, they were just spread apart, and um, we had leaks pretty much continuously all around there. And then we um, repaired the fascia. And this was actually kind of the hardest one to, part of the project to figure out. Um, you can see how the fascia is bowing out here. And these are uh, this is about six feet, six to eight feet of, of lead-coated copper. So it's hanging, incredibly heavy. And um, it's just a standing, it's a locked seam, beautifully, beautifully done lead-coated copper. We didn't want to replace it because it has a nice patina. You can see these streaks on it, and it's kind of crusty, and it's, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, and um, so rather than replace it, first we did an analysis of what was what had caused the failure. We knew water had probably been part of it. And um, a few years ago, they had actually had to resheathe that whole entire spire um, with lead-coated copper. And that was because, and they determined at that time that the nails that they used had just pulled out. And the, that they had used a nail that was a smooth shank instead of a barbed shank, and it just worked its way out. And so we knew this probably the same thing had happened here. And so we, first up, the, we knew that we had had water damage. And I don't think I have any pictures of the inside of that soffit. Nope. How do I go back? Doesn't matter. No, no, we're going to. There we go. Um, so in the, 
in that this fascia area, this plywood back behind there, the water had actually kind of, the gutter's right above this point, and the water would drip down, and run down the face, and then it would come down here in the pool, and it rotted all the plywood back in here, and we had some plywood damage on the surfaces, but we determined that actually that was pretty sound. So because the plywood was sound, we were able to um, stabilize this edge internally through some just, I thought it was very clever. Uh, and it was simple. Um, but we were able to stabilize that edge. We didn't worry about the rot in the bottom six or eight inches because we figured that the, the, the lead-coated copper, because it was bent in so many places, it had its own stability. And, um, and then we came along and the sheet metal guys opened up each of these joints very carefully, went in there, and we shotted some fasteners. And that, that's not the way it ought to be. It would have been done prop properly, but the only way, other way to do it would have been to disassemble the entire thing. And it seemed like the more conservative way to do it, and there was not money to remove everything. So the, um, the uh, joints were opened up. We shot some fasteners in, closed them back up, and you can see some little dings, but it came up pretty successfully. And because of the pit, the, this very dull patina on the metal, unless you're looking straight up the joints on a sunny day, you'll never see them. So we began the work last August. Work was substantially completed by November. Um, we finished a bunch of those items in, two, in April. We did our final report, made our reimbursement for rest in May, got the last check in, I think, June 6th. And we've got, you know, a, it was, a, for us, a very fast project. Um, and I don't know how other um, treasury projects go, but they had all, they, this is, it was an organization that was already on track to do a project. And so um, the grant was just helped them um, do a project very well. And it went for us very smoothly. We worked very well with the Park Service. State Historic Preservation Office, um, and um, and I think everyone's you know very happy with the project. And I think that's it. Thank you very much. Um, now we'll open it up for any questions anybody might have, and just shout out who you want to talk to. Go ahead. What is that block grant? That's a community development block grant. There are, there are grants that are initiated by the housing, Department of Housing and Urban Development. Mm -hmm. um, they get, I believe, they are to the state, to the, to the local governments. Well, it's usually a, a grant program that a governor uses to dish out money in his state. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> they, they, they go for all kinds of local projects. They can. Okay. Yeah, that'd be appropriate. That'd be appropriate. Yeah. I, I, they replace fire stations with that money and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You had your hand up.
like to fund and what things does it not fund? Well, we, we like the grants to focus on the historic uh, elements of the building. Um, so the majority of the projects, uh, or you know, the majority of your applications are focused on, 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 the, on the historic characteristics. We also fund things like HVA systems and electrical system upgrades and uh, security systems, things like fire suppression systems. And that's fine. Um, generally, it's fine if that's a component of it. Generally, we like it just to be a component of it, though. We like to grant more focus on the historic parts of the building. Okay. I have a question for South Dakota. Did you already have the research done for your um, interpretive elements, or was that part? Of that was all part of the project. We did all the inter all the research as part of the project, and that's why we had to bring staff on, additional staff on, to do that do that work. It seems like in looking at the Preserve America application, there's the, the points that this might be more of a question for me. There's the points that. Um, Yes. So question for um, Christine, as well as for the folks up front. Um, can you explain, we talked about this specifically, but can you explain in terms of Save America's treasures, what the relationship with NEH and IMLS is, and um, how we as applicant organizations know how best to channel an application? Questions, yep. Um, we have a, um, a renovation project that we've already begun laying uh, groundwork uh, for a possible uh, earmark request. Um, it, that would be in 2010 uh, funding cycle for 2011 uh, award if, if we're successful. Would it uh, make sense for us to also apply? Are, are listed in the National Register but maybe for state or local significance. 
do you know the level of I don't. That's I, I realize now that's one of the, the things I need to check on. That's one thing you might want to check on. If it is nationally significant, you can still apply, um, but you'll only get one or the other. You won't get both right. market. I assume that we get one or the yeah. other, but there's no problem with there's no problem with nationally applying, significant. We'll, we'll give you the um, you know if you're if you apply for uh, if you if you're if you were selected for a competitive grant it was only for two hundred thousand, but your earmark turned out to be three hundred, we give you the larger. Okay, that's great. And one, one other question, if I could relate to the same project. Um, we, the architectural study that we've had done uh, is recommending replacing the, uh, the tile uh, on the roof with uh, uh, a look-alike product made from uh, recycled rubber. Uh, is that a problem to uh, look at taking that sort of approach from a preservation uh, standpoint. Well, what I would recommend you do is talk to your state and start a preservation on this first. Yeah. Okay. Good dodge there. <laughs> In the back. Kind of along the same line um, regarding the National uh, Historic Sites. We're not on the National Registry. Um, however, do you recognize uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution and then some of the work that they do where they research the buildings and they dedicate it as, as far as historical significance to them. Is that part of this or is that something completely different? That's something different. Um, in order to get a safe infrastructure strength, you have to get you have to have the, the nomination on the National Register already. Um, you could though apply for a Preserve America grant, which Ann spoke about, and uh, use that money to, to write the nomination and fund the nomination to the register. I mean, this is a two-part question because we did that. Okay. And we were denied. Uh, oh, uh, you America. Yeah. And For your community? We're with Collingwood Library Museum on Americanism, just between Reagan Airport and Mount Vernon okay. on the George Washington Parkway. And you know, our problem was signage plus work to be done on our mansion. Uh, the signage issue, we went to the Preserve America and uh, we were approved, and we got a letter back saying, no problem, we can, we can do all this work. Then they came back about two weeks later with another, somebody higher up, sent us a letter saying, oh, no, no, we can't do that because, and I don't remember exactly why, I have to go back now and look. I didn't realize we were going to get into this discussion today, but I have to look at that. Um, but there was an issue that they had, and my understanding of that was, because we're, we are a 501c3, um, we're a private uh, library museum, but there was something there where we could not, uh, we didn't qualify for signage, and I don't understand why. Did you get, was this this year? Yes. Did you yeah. get a grant approval letter? Like we did. Okay, it's probably the funding issue. Yes, there's a, a, a funding for $3 million, 3.175, of Preserve America grants that was awarded but not funded. So you might have fallen into that category. And the goal is, when Congress comes back in September, that those would be funded. So if you got an award letter, you might actually be getting your money at some point. But we got a denial letter after that. But the denial letter didn't say that there's not funding at this time and kind of stay tuned for more. No, there was a reason for the denial. Okay. 
Well, you'll have to go back and, and check on that and then contact Hampton's office. Let's do one more question. And before we ask that question, make sure you please fill this out and just set it on a, a chair back there or bring it up here. I'd really appreciate that. Go ahead. Uh, this is for Mr. Tucker. Do you ever um, take into consideration, do you only take into consideration the historic value of the, of the building itself, or do you ever look at the, um, the actual importance of the current use of the building? Um, well, Again, because for buildings, because it's so cut and dry, um, it, it, you know, it could be listed for national significance for the current, you know, for the current use of the building. But what we're looking at is whether or not it has that, that designation. So, if we have a if we have a national, if we're in a national historic district, and I'm not sure, I have to check it to see what the level is. But if we meet that criteria, um, would you also would that be something worth putting into oh, yeah, the grants? Yes. Okay. That criteria that you can put something else in to, you know, because, because we do score the grants, we have a range of, of scores for significance. And so anything that can bump it up. Thank you all very much for attending this morning, and thank you to the panel members for participating. Really appreciate it. Loved listening about the pro projects. Um, please fill out an evaluation form and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.
Well, only Columbus. Yeah. 